The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. For those of you that don't know, my name is Chris Thurton. I'm a staff here at the Inn. And uh, tonight, I am closing out our series as we have looked, uh, it's been called Come Follow Me, looking at the things that Jesus does, who he is, uh, the ways that he leads and interacts with this world and with us. And uh, as we close out tonight, I felt it was fitting to look at this verse of scripture here in the middle of the book of John, as Jesus says, uh, I'm going back to the Father, and those that come after me, which is us, will do greater things than me. And we spent all summer looking at the great things that Jesus has done, the great ways that he has led. And tonight, we're going to look at the ways that he has empowered us to lead and do greater things than he has. Uh, in fact, that's what I've called this sermon tonight, Greater Things. So before we get going, I'm going to pray. I'll ask you all to pray with me and we'll get get into it. Father God, I thank you so much that you gave us your son, Jesus. I thank you that he died and rose again for our sins. I thank you that he loved us so much that he gave his life for us, God. But we thank you that it did not end there. We thank you that he has called us to greater things. We thank you that you have called us to greater things, God. We thank you that the ways that Jesus healed, the ways that Jesus brought your kingdom, the ways that Jesus loved people, the ways that he walked with them, the ways he made sure people were never alone. God, we thank you that 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 did not stop with Jesus, but that that continues on with us. God, I pray that tonight you would help us to hear that truth. You would help us to hear the truth of what your kingdom is and that it is coming. God, I pray that you would uh, help me to proclaim your word word, God. Uh, I pray that whatever is not from me would be, uh, whatever is from you would be remembered and whatever is from me would be forgotten, God. That is my prayer tonight. And Jesus, we just pray that, that your will be done, your kingdom would come tonight a little bit more, God, as it is in heaven. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> guys, do you remember the first lie you ever told? You guys remember it? I remember my first lie that I ever told. And I remember it because it, it, it shattered my innocence. <laughs> it was the moment that I realized that this was a broken world and that I was a broken individual in this world. At the ripe old age of three years old, my worldview has changed <laughs> forever. <laughs> and I told my very first lie at three years old. Um, it's crazy, like the random things you remember. Uh, I'm glad that, that, that Swope and Mary Grace led us through Disney songs earlier because this lie involved a Disney movie. Uh, so we were, me and my family were visiting, we were at some friend's house and, uh, they're older couples, so all their kids were older and so I had no one to play with. So they let me watch a movie. So let me watch Snow White. Uh, in the Seven Dwarves, if you've seen it, uh, great, great movie. Lots of adaptations have been done since, but the original Snow White. And I watched it, and uh, it's three years old. I'm watching it, and the there is a witch in this movie, and she scared the hell out of me. <laughs> three years old, the witch scared me so bad. And uh, this lady, whose house we were at, she was like, oh, you didn't finish the movie. Oh my goodness, you can borrow it and give it back to us next week at church. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks. And um, she gave us the movie and I took it home and I did not watch it because I was scared of the witch. <laughs> no joke. And uh, we brought the movie back to church and the next week we gave it to the lady and um, she asked me, she said, oh, what'd you think? How'd you like the movie? And I said, I loved it. So good. My favorite movie. Every part of it. Loved it. Didn't watch it. Did not watch the rest of it. That was the first lie I ever told. I told a lady that I love Snow White. 
and uh, whatever. This is what's interesting about it. The lie, as goofy as it seems, as insignificant as it seems, uh, I remember specifically going home that night from church after lying to this lady, sitting in bed and thinking, I'm the worst person in the world. Three years old. Three years old. This is no joke. It's crazy what we remember. Um, and, and at three years old, like I said, is when I realized that, that this world is broken, that, that we, we lie to each other, that, that bad things happen, that, that human beings aren't all good. And I realized it in myself. And, and I realized that I was a part of it. Uh, it's crazy. That is a very simple and lighthearted story with a profound effect on my life. But the reality is there's other people that, that realize that the world is broken for the first time in much, much worse and intense ways than that. Uh, and, and the reality is, is as I grew up, and I guarantee as you all have, have grown up, we have experienced that the world is a broken place in, in some pretty intense and real ways. Um, 9-11. I remember exactly where it was. Seventh grade, Mr. Scabaris' class. I was sitting in the back left, left corner of the room. Uh, I was in Toronto, Canada. We, I had cousins that were in the tower. Uh, a lot of my classmates had parents that worked in New York that were there. Uh, it was crazy. Our teacher comes in, and I remember him being stone-faced. I remember exactly, this was what, 2000, uh, 2001? So this was 16 years ago, and I remember this like it was yesterday. He walked in the class. He was wearing a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey. It was half white, half blue. It was a weird jersey. Walks in the room, stone-faced, and tells us that a, tow- uh, a plane had hit one of the towers. And they wheeled a TV into class, and we started watching, and, and everything shut down for the day. And that, that's what we did. Was, was track 9-11. That's evil stuff that happened. Bad stuff. I remember it like it was yesterday. The world is a broken place. Right now in Houston, there's tons of people that are, are, are their homes have been ruined. Their lives have been, have been ruined. People have died because of flooding, natural disasters. Sometimes the evil in this world is person on person. Sometimes it's just by nature that this world is broken. And, and it is a harsh and brutal world out there. This, this world we live in is is a broken and brutal and a lot of times terrible place. Uh, bet you didn't think I was going to start so on such a high note tonight when you got here. Um, a couple of years ago, I remember when, when Michael Brown um, got shot, which, which, I mean, this is not the first time a black man's been shot by police officers, but it got the news attention like... It hadn't in a while. And, um, and I remember talking to one of my best friends, and he said, man, I feel like all the work we've done for civil rights has been pushed back 30, 40 years. And I remember talking to him and saying, no, I don't think we've been pushed back. I think we realized how far we, that we didn't come as far as we thought we did, which is a bummer, right? Like, you would think that we would have come a long way from the times Martin Luther King and others were marching on Capitol Hill. Part of why I, I subscribe to the Bible, to, to this book here, is because it's real. It's honest about the brutality and brokenness in the world that we live in. You read this book. The interesting thing, I, I'm going to apologize on behalf of, of churches around America. Uh, I think we have really good intentions, but we sugarcoat it sometimes, and we don't read the stories that are hard to read. So we grow up and we learn all the, the happy stories, all the good ones, all the ones that make us feel good about ourselves. Uh, 
and we don't talk about the brokenness as much as we should, and we don't address that. But this book is a very brutal book full of very real human individuals who are interacting with a broken world and are broken themselves. And what I love about this book is that it is real. Like that, that's the reality we live in. I just gave you very tangible examples from my own life and from the reality that we have all experienced together that this is real. And I know you all have your own stories of brokenness in the world and in your lives. There's difficult stuff to read, to, to read about in the Bible. There's difficult things to, to see and interact with in our world. There's brokenness. But the reality, the other reason that I love the Bible is that it is uh, it's a book that, that's full of the realness of the world, but it also takes us on the journey uh, from creation to, to now through Jesus. And, and it takes us on this story arc that shows us that things are getting better. I, I just named a bunch of things that happened in my lifetime so in the 28 years that I've been alive, that have sucked and been really bad. But the reality is we read some of the brutality from centuries ago in the Bible and we do, that it's documented in history. And we see that this world is a very brutal place. But the, the story that we read about in the Bible is one of a God who created us, did not create us for the brutality of this world, but evil entered into this world. And ever since evil into this, entered into this world, he's been doing everything to conquer that evil. He has been using this creation that turned its back on him, using us. He has called us to work with him to, to conquer that evil. To, to make the world a little less broken than it was yesterday. Continually, since sin and evil entered into the world, God, this is the story of God working to make it right again. And yes, we read about brutality, we read about brokenness, we read about the, the worst of humanity, but we read about it in a way that God is saying, I have more for you. This isn't it. And as we, we read through the Bible, you can see glimpses of hope. You can see that, that the evil doesn't win. That when things go bad, when, when bad things happen, when when there is very real brutality. God pulls us out of it and says, no, no, I have more. Even when the reality is, yes, there's times where we read things that are difficult. And that's another sermon for another time where we dive into the difficult things that, that we see God have, has his people, Israel, do to other nations. But the reality is the ways that, that God is, is interacting with Israel is, is, and the ways that he has Israel interact with other, other cultures is much more much more um, chill and subdued than the ways other cultures were dealing with each other. It's crazy. He, he, he calls Israel to be better. So, so God says, I'm going to make this world better. And the way I'm going to let this world know what I have for it, in the midst of this brutality, in the midst of this horridness, I'm going to choose a certain group of people and I'm going to work with that group of people. And in that group of people, I'm going to have them display to the world that there's a better way, that there's a better way than everything else. There's a better way than the way the rest of the world does it. I'm going to show that I have a way of love, of truth, of justice, of equality, of, of, of of righteousness and goodness that is better than the rest of the world has. And when the rest of the world is, is in the living in the midst of chaos, those that are walking right with God should be living in a way that sets them apart 
that shows that there's something different, that shows that there's something more. When the chaos of the world hits, we live differently. When the chaos and the brokenness hits, whether it's from other human beings and individuals or because of this world is a crazy mixed up world, we live differently than those that do not know God. Not that we are better, we are not better, but we know someone who is better. We know that there is a truth that is better than the brokenness of the world. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? This is what God has called us into. It's incredible. But because he chose to work with humanity, human people, Israel, they were humans. They were not perfect as God is perfect. And so they did not live into it right. And so when we read about uh, the times, uh, we look at the book of Judges. The book of Judges is all about these incredibly horrid acts that happen, that Israel commits and that people commit against Israel. And, and the reality is whenever that happens, it's because the, the people of Israel that God has chosen, that God chose, they stopped living in a way that said, there's a better way. They stopped showing the world that there's a better way. And because of that, Atrocities happened, and God sent someone to save them. Every time he sent someone to save them, every time that brutality happened to Israel, when they stopped living in a better way, whenever they stopped looking to God and the rest of the world came and the brutality of the world overtook them, he sent someone to save them. And a lot of times, the, the ways that, that Israel was saved was in very brutal ways because it's a brutal world. But the reality is it took us from... an extremely brutal place to a little less brutal and a little less brutal and a little less brutal. Does that make sense? Continually. We see that you read through the old Testament. You can't just read it in chunks because you're going to read something that's really hard to read and you're not going to be able to move. You're going to, you're going to get stuck on it. If you just read it and read it in a vacuum and stay in that spot, it'll mess with your mind. But if we read it in the whole totality of this story, that is the whole Bible that is continuing on today, we're going to see that things are getting a little better and a little better and a little better and that there's a story arc that God is taking us on that he's invited us to be a part of that he is doing. You guys tracking with me? So Israel, time and time again, the people that God chose to show the world that there was something better for the world couldn't live up to it. They failed time and time again. So what did God do? He did what he always does. He took matters into, took matters into his own hands and said, no, I, I'm not going to settle for, this, for, for humanity to be stuck in this broken place. I'm going to take you to a better place. I'm going to show you there's a better way. And so what he did, he became human in the form of Jesus, his son. And Jesus showed us a better way, perfectly. He showed us a better way. And that's what we've been talking about this whole summer is the leadership of Jesus, the, the, who he is, the things that he does, the things that he says, the ways that he interacts with people. If you haven't heard most of the sermons, go back and listen to them online. We've looked at who Jesus is and the way he interacts with a very broken world and the ways that he lived into what God had for this world. That was broken. Jesus was the perfect example of what God wants for those that follow him to be. And, and, and we talked about it. What did he do? He healed the blind. He, he, he would go interact with those that were, were lonely, those that were outcast. 
Those that, that society said, you are the bottom rung, no one should interact with you. Jesus interacted with them and said, no, I have greater things for you. I have a purpose for you. Uh, you are loved. You're enough when everyone says you're not. Uh, he, he brought different people groups together. He brought people that hated each other, that were different races and ethnicities together, to, that eventually came to love one another and do life together. He brought, he brought different classes of people together. Within his followers, his 12 disciples, there was people that were super rich at the top of the food chain economically that made their money from stealing from the poor and lying and cheating. He brought them into his inner circle along with the poor that were being lied to and stolen from and brought them into his inner circle. And they reconciled and became best of friends. And walk together and change the world together. That's what Jesus did. He lived a different way. He showed the world that there was a better way. Through the way that he lived his life. And ultimately, as I talked about last week, he paid the price. Like I said, this is a brutal world. Evil is brutal. Evil is terrible. Evil is painful and hard and hurtful. And as we read about in the Old Testament, we see the brutal lengths that God is willing to go to to combat against evil. And, and it's troubling. It is very troubling. But the reality of Jesus is that Jesus steps into that brutality and takes all of it on so that the answer to the brutality of evil no longer has to be brutality because Jesus prayed the most brutal sentence for it. Does that make sense? Jesus stepped in to this life being the only one who was not affected by evil, the only one who was not affected uh, personally by the, that did not project any evil out of himself, did not project any of that harshness onto anybody else that ever lived. So he did not deserve to have any of that evil projected and put onto him. But he stepped into it and took the brunt of it and on that cross died and took all of humanity's evil. All of humanity's brutality. It's interesting. I don't think we think of the brutality of the cross, but we look at the brutality that, that, that goes on with human beings. And we say, oh, this is horrible. But then we say, how can God do these crazy things, these crazy brutal things in the Old Testament? But we look that in the New Testament, he doesn't do that. We, he's not a different God. The reality is the brutality that is fighting against evil in the Old Testament was all put onto Jesus so that the New Testament, so that the way we live now does not have to be brutal. There's a better way for us to live. We do not have to com com compete against evil and hate with more evil and hate at all because Jesus took all of it on in everything that he did and all that he did on the cross. He took that head on and he did great things, great miracles. He changed the world. He really did. And then we look at that scripture in John. You bring it back up. Not that one. There you go. And it says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these. Do you guys believe that? Do 
Jesus says explicitly, I've done great things. I've changed the world. I have taken on evil. I have, I have healed the sick, brought sight to the blind, made people who couldn't walk, walk. I have made the lonely not be alone anymore. I have given purpose to the purposeless. I have empowered women. I have brought together different races and cultures. And he says, guess what? You are going to do greater things than me. Why? Because Jesus was only one man in union with God. Perfect union with God, but still one man. His promise here is that he's going to the Father, and he says, whatever I do for you, we read that you and we make it personal. The reality is that you is plural. It means all of us, anybody, humanity, any person that asks in his name to the Father will be glorified in the Son, and anything that you ask, he will do. And so now, Jesus, by dying and resurrecting on the cross, has, has taken the ultimate price and made it so that it is no longer one man in perfect union with God, but the potential for countless millions of people to be in union with God, doing the work of Jesus. That's the greater things. We may not do the spectacular things, that Jesus did. But cumulatively, we will do greater things than we read about Jesus doing in the Bible. This is incredible stuff. There's this awesome, uh, just to give you an example of this, there's this awesome uh, section in uh, the Old Testament where there's a dude named Elijah and Elisha. Elijah did incredibly big and, and miraculous things. He did, uh, he brought fire down from heaven. He, he it, it was crazy. He did ridiculous things. Uh, and, um, Elisha was his, was his apprentice. And Elisha, when, when Elijah was dying, it's confusing, they have very similar names. Uh, but when Elisha, the apprentice, uh, when Elijah was dying, the apprentice, Elisha, prayed to God that he would have double the amount of favor, that he would have double the amount of the spirit that Elijah had. And, and if you read it, Elisha did exactly double the amount of miracles that Elijah did. But they were like simple things. Like one night they were about to run out of oil in their lamp and it didn't run out. Great. Cool. That's awesome. <laughs> it's pretty cool, but like it's not fire coming down from heaven. <laughs> the reality, why do I tell that story is I think so often we think that the only ways that we can be full of the Spirit, the only ways we can be doing greater things than Jesus, that we can be a part of the greater things, is if it's on the level of spectacularity that, of the things that Jesus did. But that's not the reality. The reality is anytime we step in with Jesus, into faithfulness, anytime that we, we talk to the homeless person on the side of the street, anytime that we interact with a friend who is sad and crying, anytime we go to the aid of somebody, anytime we give money to a relief fund, anytime that we... Uh, Hold the door, walk a lady across the street who, who has a cane and is old. Whatever we do, anytime we step into that, we are stepping in and being a part of the greater things that Jesus promised we would do. Does that make sense? It is hard to believe that that's true. It is hard for me to believe that this world is getting better. 
It's hard for me to believe that, that we are doing greater things than Jesus. When I look out my doors and, and I look on the news and I see that there is so much brokenness still in the world. Uh, we addressed it a couple weeks ago. We looked at it. We talked about Charleston. We prayed for it. We said we weren't going to forget about it. So we aren't. Uh, but there's, there's this group of men that I get together with every once in a while and do a Bible study with them. And they're, they're, it's a bunch of, I'm, one of, I'm on the younger end of these dudes, but it is a very multicultural group. There is, uh, I mean, I've never been a part of a group of, of, of a Bible study of men that has been so diverse in my life. And, and we were there. Uh, I wasn't at this meeting, but, but one of my friends was at it, and he told me this story. He told me that the men that were there, the older black men that are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, and even 80s that were there at that, that Bible study that day were reflecting on Charleston, and they're saying, yes, this is bad. This is bad. I'm not going to discredit the ugliness of Charleston, but they're like, man, it is way better than the 50s. Way better than the 40s when people were being lynched outside, when there was bombings at churches, at black churches, when little girls were getting bombed as they were going up to sing in the choir. It's way better than, than the Jim Crow laws. It's way better than slavery. It's better. Like, there's one dude there who legitimately, he, he was born on the tail end of being a, like a sharecropper and a, a, essentially a slave. He's old enough that he was born into that world in the South, in Mississippi, where he was essentially a slave for all intents and purposes. And he sits here today and says, it's better. Charleston sucks. Michael Brown sucks. Alton Sterling sucks. But it's better. And if we, if we get so caught up in the brokenness of it as followers of Jesus that know that there's a greater hope, if we get so caught up in the brokenness and forget to step into the greatness that Jesus has promised for us, it's going to continue to suck. But if we remember the truth that Jesus, that of Jesus on that cross, if we remember the truth that the Bible is telling a story that's continually moving us towards a point that is better than the world says that we are, we are going to continue to get better. We are going to continue to see God's kingdom come. We are going to continue to see this world move forward. We, if we can look at the sins of our fathers and mothers and say, I am going to be better than my father and mother were, we will get better. This is what Jesus calls us to. There's a verse that says that, 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 that we're called to that says to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And I think so often when we think about following Jesus and we think about entering into this greatness that he's called us to, we think we have to be the perfect Christians and followers of Jesus. Well, I got news for you. No one has been except for Jesus himself. And so that's why you see the church do so many bad and stupid things. I'm not here to say that the church is perfect because we're not. Hopefully we're better than we are worse who knows? That's debatable. But as followers of Jesus, we need to continue to try to be better than we are worse. And when you, it's hard to read that verse that's, that says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect out of context because there's so much more to meet the eye. And so when we read this word perfect, if we get that slide up, we read perfect and we, we, we think of it like this. 
to make something completely free from faults or defects as close or as close to such conditions as possible. When we read to be perfect as God is perfect, we think we must be pristine. We must be without fault. We must not ever make mistakes or have any, any brokenness about us. But the reality is that word that's used there, the word in Greek, because a lot of the New Testament is written in Greek, and when that was written, it was written in Greek. The word perfect is actually teleos, and teleos means to be mature, going through the necessary stages to reach the end goal, to be developed and consummating com- uh, completion by fulfilling the necessary process. When, when Paul writes that we should be perfect, the perfection he's talking about there is not without flaws, but it's to be complete. It's to finish the job. And so uh, an example I love to use with this that, that makes it happen. I just bought a new car. It is great. And in lots of ways, it, it, is, it is perfect, which is awesome. It's great. My old car was a 2004 Pontiac uh, Grand Am. Ooh, yeah, whew, hot ride. Here, it's here. 2004, Pontiac Grand Am. But let me tell you, that thing had 170,000 miles on it. It had a bunch of dents in it. Uh, it had uh, some scratches on it. It was pretty ugly but uh, by the end of it, but I, I loved it. But the reality is that car was perfect because it got me from A to B all the time. It did its job. Despite all the flaws, all the brokenness of it, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. It completed its job. It got me from point A to point B. So in that sense, it was perfect. So when we are called to be perfect, we are called to go through the necessary, necessary stages to reach the end goal. Not to be flawless, but to move forward. To take a step. To take another step. To, to enter into the messiness. As brutal as the world is, as brutal as life can be, we're called to more. We're called to be perfect, to be set apart from the brutalness. And what's that mean? It means that all we have to do is try. This morning I was was talking with, with the interns and we were talking about this idea of faith and that all Jesus needs from us is an inch of faith. All he needs from us is an inch of faith. And he'll go the mile. So all that's asked from us in the end is to believe and try. To not give up. That is our perfection. To not give up until what Jesus did on the cross in conquering death and evil and hate is fully realized in this world, is fully actualized until that, that victory on the cross becomes known throughout the whole world as we have come to know it more and more in our lives. That's our perfection. Finally, if we could bring up the, the, the verse again. The greater things, our perfection, comes in trying. And then there's this incredible part that says here, ask anything in my name and I will do it. Uh, I could go into another sermon I won't for time's sake. 
but when it, we, I think we've misused the way we say in Jesus' name. A lot of times we think we, we just add it on to a prayer at the end, uh, which Jesus' name does have power. There's a couple people out on the street watching us. Hey. <laughs> Woo. Nice. Dig it. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. I like that. Um, see, look, look at that. The world is much better than we think it is. Um, uh, that was all part of my talk. I knew there was one. I think we've misused the way we say in Jesus' name. Yes, Jesus' name has power and authority. I am not saying it doesn't. It really does. And it's incredible. We can, in any situation, we, we can call on the name of Jesus, and it is the, the name above all names. Its, it's power is, is unmatched, which is phenomenal. But, but here when it says, ask for anything in my name, it's not just saying that if you, if you utter these words, if you have this incantation, if you say at the end of any prayer, in Jesus' name, amen, whatever you prayed for will happen, like you just rubbed a bottle and a genie came out and it's one of your wishes. That's, that's not the reality of that prayer. The reality is when we say, in Jesus' name, we are stepping into a reality, into a lifestyle, into the, this truth about who we've learned Jesus to be this summer. We are stepping into the reality of who Jesus is. And, and, and whenever, this is a legal term in my name, the, when something is in somebody's name, it is legally saying that it is under the ownership of whoever's name it is under. It is saying that legally it is this person's property. It is this person's ownership. It is, it is an extension of this person. So when we are praying, when we are asking for things in Jesus' name, we are stepping in, whether it is an inch of faith or a mile of faith, into the reality that Jesus, we are Jesus Christ. That, that, that the goodness that, that he displayed in his life is the goodness that is covering us. And when we pray and ask for things in his name, we are stepping into the reality that this is what God wants and has for this world. And, and when it says he will do it, it's the promise that he will complete what he did on the cross. So when we are praying in his name, we are praying an extension of what happened on that cross. And that is incredible stuff. That is our perfection. That's our hope. And that's what we're called to. To believe and to try. You with me? Sounds good. Let's pray. Father God, uh, thank you that you're with us. Thank you that, that you are moving us towards your kingdom more and more. Uh, thank you that in the midst of a brutal world, you have called us to something more, something different. Thank you for random people that walk by on the street that are praying for us, God. Uh, thank you that we are not alone. God, again, whatever uh, was from me, I pray would be forgotten. And everything that was from you, I pray would be written on our hearts, uh, that we would know you more, and that we would continue to do greater things with you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.